Recovery Elevator, episode 364. I actually feel like not drinking is an opportunity rather than a punishment. Awakening is a shift in consciousness in which thinking and awareness separate. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we have Ben. He's 41 years old, he's from England, and took his last drink on September 26th, 2021. Ben, what a great name. (laughs) My dog is also named Ben. So everyone, it's with a sad heart, we are canceling our upcoming event in Denver this March 31st to April 2nd. We've all heard about the supply chain issues, and the hotel just simply could not get enough soda water on hand for our group. Ah, I'm kidding. It's due to COVID. My goodness, this is getting old. This is the second time we've canceled this same event. However, listeners, we've got the Bozeman Retreat on the calendar for August 10th to August 14th this year, and that's always a powerful event. We've got roughly 100 spots for that event, and it's a good idea to be a Cafe Ari member if you want to attend. The reason why is because we open up the event for one day early for Cafe Ari members, And this event sold out in six hours last time we had it. Registration for this event should go live in April or early May. Kind of just waiting to see what happens with COVID. But of course, I'll keep you guys in the loop. And before we get any further, let's hear from Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the U.S. with an alcohol use disorder? And yet there is still stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slip-ups or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with Tips for Handling a Relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next step in the recovery journey. That's www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. Okay, let's get started. It's great to be back with you this week. I hope you all enjoyed Odette's episode last week. She had a great line about our thoughts. It was to question whether a single thought will lead you closer or further away from your desired alcohol-free life. Odette has dropped Unchingon de Value Bombs on this podcast, but that is one of my favorites. Okay, I just got back from our third sober travel trip, and this one was to Costa Rica. And my goodness, there is a story that I want to share with you. But first, congrats to Nick, who hit one year AF on the trip. That's big time, Nick. It was great meeting you, and nice job. So when planning this trip, we wanted to do a catamaran sunset tour on the second to last day. When requesting this with our travel company, I was very clear to state no alcohol on the boat, as in none. We are a sober travel group, and I feel I got the point across. So the shuttle comes to pick us up, and on the side of the shuttle is a picture of the catamaran. It's massive. Water slides, multiple decks. I mean, this boat could probably hold 100 to 150 people. I'd bet Daddy Yankee filmed a couple music videos on this boat. 
I was like, wow, we get that whole boat to ourselves. Amazing. So on the way to the marina, it's myself, our tour guide, Victor, and the shuttle driver all in the front row seat. I lean over to greet the driver and say, it's just our group on the boat, right? He looks at me and says, uh, no, uh, there's a lot of people. And then I say, uh, are they sober or, or, or are they not drinking also? He then looks at me with a perplexed look and goes, uh, no, it's a big party, a big party. Now at this moment, my blood pressure is rising. Cue heart palpitations because I'm realizing a sober travel group is about to go on a booze cruise. I then look at my guide and then at the driver and say, uh, no, we have a problem here. The driver looks at me and says, oye, pura vida, no problem, and gives me their national thumbs up slogan. What I said next even surprised myself. I said, no, somebody fucked up. I said it loud with at least three exclamation marks at the end. And as you can imagine, there was about five to eight seconds of awkward silence. And then my guide, Victor, turns to me and says, uh, hey, Paul, do you have any brothers and sisters? I was like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. So on top of that, to solve the no drinking thing, they gave us wristbands representing that our group doesn't drink. So there's already a stigma surrounding addiction. And now you're giving us wristbands to single us out even more. As you can imagine, I was pissed, fucking pissed, but life goes on. We had to figure something out. So here is what happened. After they did the orientation for the cruise, we made a beeline up to the top deck, grabbed as many lounge chairs as we could, and made a huge circle for just our group. In fact, I think we even partied harder than everyone else, AF of course. We were the group doing the cha-cha slide and the Cupid shuffle, not the people drinking. A couple of people asked what the wristbands were for and what recovery elevator was since we were all wearing matching shirts. And when we told them what RE was, the response was always, awesome, that's great, keep it up. Another neat thing happened. About halfway through the booze cruise, I noticed a gal sitting with our group. I could see it on her face that she wasn't having a good time at all. Later to find out, she's traveling alone and had a really bad hangover. In addition, she mentioned to me she was also questioning the role that alcohol was playing in her life. So we sometimes absorb people on these trips. It's not the first time it's happened. There's just some sort of inner guide that says, I'm going to go hang out with the sober group. It's kind of funny. So at sunset, we got an amazing group shot. And as far as I know, I'd bet the farm that nobody drank on the booze cruise. We didn't need to. We were playing bananagrams, dancing, and jumping in the water. No alcohol was needed to have fun. It wasn't an issue because we had accountability built in, and again, we were having fun. I had at least five mango soda waters. Thank you, Linda, for the drink recommendations. And thank you, everyone who attended this trip, and thank you for trusting me. I had a great time getting to know everybody. What's next for Recovery Elevator Sober Alcohol-Free Travel? Well, first, I'm going to wait till the COVID situation simmers down. And in total, we've done three sober travel trips. In 2018, we went to Peru. We did the Inca Trail, Machu Picchu. That trip was heavy on volunteer slash service work. Then right before the pandemic, I mean, we got back just in the nick of time. We went to Thailand and Cambodia, where we got our meditation on at Angkor Wat. And then this last trip to Costa Rica, where we saw tons of wildlife and partied hard on a booze cruise, minus the booze, of course. There's a chance we might repeat these three trips again. They were powerful and they were all a lot of fun. And of course, I'll keep you guys in the loop. Okay, 
And here's your nervous system tip for today's episode. And we're trying to get out of the box here. I really like this one. So much anxiety and depression comes when we feel disconnected or away from the pack, herd, tribe, community, or whatever you want to call it. When I used to DJ at the Marlboro Ranch near Clyde Park, Montana, and that seems like a different lifetime ago, something neat happened on the commute, many times. While driving on the dusty dirt roads at the bottom of the crazy mountain range, you don't see many vehicles. But when you do, they would almost always wave at me when passing. And I would always wave back, without even thinking. It was almost automatic. Before I could think about it, I had given them the customary cowboy salute. It felt good. And after all, I was wearing cowboy boots at the time. It was like a mini boost of connection. Dopamine was released in a very healthy way. So here's the nervous system tip for today, and many of you can try this right about now. <laughs> I almost said meow, what's up super troopers? Again, many of you can try this right now because some of you are driving at the moment. So when you do this, you initiate a powerful universal law, which is when you perform an act of kindness, it always provokes another. Always. Siempre. The person you wave at will then make somebody else's day better in some other format. Maybe they'll get somebody a donut or a Slurpee, who knows? And you don't have to be on the backcountry roads in Montana. Try it at a stoplight. I have, and 99% of the time, you'll get a wave back. The other 1%, they didn't see you. Remember, the opposite of addiction is connection. Now we're about to hear from BetterHelp, but one quick thing about BetterHelp. Listeners, it's a great service. We don't plug products or services that we don't believe in or align with. I've personally used BetterHelp in the past, and for some, it's a better way to get help. And before we hear from Odette and Ben, let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for an amazing introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Ben to the show today. Ben, how's it going? How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for figuring out a time zone that would work for us both today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I really appreciate it because from my experience of listening to the podcast, you mostly tend to have people from your side of the Atlantic on the show. So I feel quite honored. 
I know. Thank you so much. I was really excited to know that you reached out and that you're ready to share your story. So let's do this. And when was the last time you had a drink, Ben? The 26th of September, 2021. How are you feeling? Um, well, this is the longest of my adult life I've ever been without alcohol. And to have passed that point where I knew it was 91 days before was the longest I'd ever done. And then having gone beyond that, is exciting for me because I've never been this far before. And, and for the first time, I actually feel like not drinking is an opportunity rather than a punishment. And I have a lot to thank you guys at Recovery Elevator for that because the podcast and everything that I've been listening to, it's only this time of, the, uh, of stopping drinking that I've actually tried to do any work and, and, and be inspired. As I said before, it was always a punishment. This time, it feels like an opportunity and a reward. Thanks for sharing that, Ben. I know that it takes time. And I know that it is one of our quote unquote tags, taglines, you know, recovery is an opportunity. And <laughs> sometimes it's just hard because even if you read the pretty tagline, you're like, but this still sucks. I, it doesn't, <laughs> it takes some time to connect to the concept with the feeling. So I'm really happy to hear that you're there and that we've been a resource for you. So thanks for listening. And before we keep going with all the alcohol talk, tell us a little bit about yourself, Ben. Just tell us where you're calling in from. What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And just a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm calling from England and I'm 41 years old. I'm going to turn 42 in March and I'm a musician. So that's my job. And I've been lucky enough to be professionally a musician since I was 26. I'm not married and I love reading, movies, exercise, board games, computer games. And I want to get into amateur dramatics. I did a little bit in my teenage years and I actually did a, a um, my degree was in drama. But then after university, I just uh, followed music <clears throat> and I really miss being involved in, um, in, in the stage and, and, and stuff like that. There's a certain kind of camaraderie and magic that you only really get when you're part of a performance. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to, now that I've got so much more time because I'm not drinking, um, explore the possibility of getting back into that magical world of theater. I love that you're sharing all of this and uh, this question is a little bit out of order, but I just want to ask it right now, since you're sharing that you do have all of these passions and you're a musician. Um, how has yeah. sobriety impacted the creative process for you? I feel like there is this, you know, stigma and this, all these stereotypes about how artists get more creative when they're drinking because it just like loosens you up and gets you in touch with your feelings. So can you debunk that a little bit for us or kind of just share how you operate when you're drinking and how you operate when you're not drinking in terms of artistry? I think that's a really, really good question. And for many years, I did feel that, that I have to drink to have the kind of experiences that are worth writing about. If I'm just sat at home watching TV or reading a book, when's all the good stuff going to happen? When's all the adventure going to happen? <laughs> and I think that whole sense of alcohol being <clears throat> connected with adventure and exciting things is a fallacy that has deeply been entrenched in, in the music world for a long time. And I think for a lot of people's lives as well, they affiliate drinking means excitement. 
Drinking means adventure. Drinking means you're an interesting person. And I've heard it said a few times over the years of when I was in bands, someone talking about, oh, that guy in that band, he doesn't drink. So I don't really believe in him or he can't really have anything to sing about. And, and I, I believed that, too, for a long time. I, I believed that, that uh, these kind of straight edge people, there's nothing really for them to. How are they living? What are they doing? To, to drink is to is to experience life maybe that comes from the social element of it maybe that comes from but when you drink you never really know what's going to happen and isn't that exciting although i'm sure that you know and a lot of your listeners will know that that thing that happens that's really exciting when you drink is not necessarily exciting it's dramatic and it's dramatic because something really bad happens <laughs> Whether that be losing your wallet or falling down the stairs or insulting someone or sleeping with the wrong person, it's all drama, isn't it? And it's all stuff that creates some sort of event. But as we know, those events and that drama just leads to that most awful kind of anxiety and depression and despair that doesn't make you want to sit down and write a song because you're so unable to do anything. So there was... A time that I did write a song, um, I actually I have written a few songs, more so actually in my sobriety now, about drinking. And the first time I wrote a song was in 2010 about drinking. And I used a lot of Greek mythology imagery in the lyrics. And I was very proud of the song. And it was just talking about the feeling of being very weak and um, of being under the kind of the magical control of this other sort of myth mythological uh, creature and and I, I found that was a very cathartic process at the same time it was still very romantic there was all this imagery was very kind of seductive and very sensual and um and, and theatrical again and as a consequence it romanticized the thing a bit whereas the songs that I've been writing since I've become sober looking back on those days of drinking where I could never do anything have been some of the stuff I'm the most proud of because I'm looking back onto those times of that struggle now with a much more hopeful and optimistic view and looking forward rather than feeling trapped and hopeless. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, you didn't use this word, but what popped in my head was, you know, it gets to a point where it, it's paralyzing. And we often say on here, it works until it doesn't. So maybe for some artists, yeah, you know, having one, you know, it does loosen us up a little bit and lower inhibitions and and all of this but if you are really on the cycle that most of us end up on where we find ourselves needing to quit it, it it's a shift from that place to a debilitating state and then how can we even tap into our creativity or experience life you know you said uh, when you drink you don't know what's going to happen and that this is kind of the idea that we have. But I've come to find that what scares me more and excites me more is that when I'm sober, it's when I actually don't know what's going to happen. When I drink, it's pretty predictable at this point for many of us. <laughs> it's more like, oh, what's yeah, actually going forward, to happen? Right? Yeah, it's actually, it's it sh slowly just becomes the opposite. I feel like everything that we believe kind of flips 180. It does take time like we talked at the beginning. But thanks for sharing that. I do feel like musicians drinking are like a metaphor to just showing up to a party sober. Like, how is that person going to have fun? How is that person going to express themselves? How is that person 
going to have stories to tell. And we find that we that we do. So I'm just, I'm really excited to learn more and I'll have to rewind a little bit and just ask you about your journey with alcohol and when did your relationship start? When did it get awful and to the point where you realized you had a problem and what got you here, Ben? Okay. So I started drinking in 1994. I was at a house party and it was, I guess it was very similar to what a lot of teenagers go through. You go to somebody's house and it's that person whose parents are actually a bit more cool and maybe they go out for the evening and they let the kids drink or whatever and and I remember it was um that party that suddenly just opened up my mind of this is what the escape is at the time I was under a lot of criticism at school and from my family life of being interested in rock music so I had long hair and I was a late developer so I, I really looked like a little girl for a long time which really affected my self-esteem as a young as a young man but I was never going to cut my hair I was never going to change that about myself so all this criticism that I was sort of facing from the bullies at school and from sort of my home life when we drank it meant you could escape from that suddenly it was party zone the critical voice would disappear you'd be free you'd be fun and I found that through my teenage years that started to become more and more of a thing that I would look forward to. Be in school and you'd be thinking, right, we've got that nightclub that we go to. They only do it once a month. They do the rock club once a month. And that's the next time we can have fun because we're going to be music and drinking. And again, the combination of music and drinking, plus the social aspect of it, of meeting up members of the opposite sex and how exciting all that is and everything. And it all became this combination of... This is the escape. This is the way to get out. And without alcohol, we can't do it because alcohol gives us the altered mind state where we have the confidence to go into that world where everything is elevated because of alcohol. We, we, everything's more exciting. Everything's more brighter and, and more energetic. So I, that went through all my teenage years and into when I started being in bands in a much more kind of, not professional, but certainly where I was spending a lot of time in bands and going and doing shows and touring and I never drank on stage I would never drink before I played and I, I only ever drank before I played about in 2018 which I'll come on to and that was because the enjoyment for me in music is so incredible and euphoric to get to play to get to sing to be on stage to be in the studio I've never wanted anything to impair that feeling and alcohol acts as a filter doesn't it it numbs your awareness of of the bigger picture so I never drank when I played until this other time I'll tell you about it. but um so through the through the 90s and into the early 2000s drinking became part of my band culture but not on stage it was the partying afterwards and the going out and meeting people and going clubbing and being seen to be on the scene and, and that kind of side of it. And it would start, it started becoming more of a problem. I started noticing in my early, in the early, early 2000s, in my early 20s, when I would always be the guy who at the end of the night would end up falling down the stairs of the club because he drank too much or kissing the wrong girl or sleeping with the wrong person or even like injuring myself to the point where we'd wake up the next day and we'd have a show and, and we'd have to be on the way to the show and I'd we get there and the, the nurse at the gig would have to look after me. And, and, and it was kind of funny because we were young. But at the same time, 
it was starting to become very common that I was the one who'd be getting into these kind of problems. And when I was 20, it became interlocked with a eating disorder. I had a binge eating disorder. And now I look back on it, I realized that it was all to do with excess because I was always been a binge drinker. I've never been someone who would wake up on, on a Wednesday morning and be like, oh, I need a vodka. It would always be about starting something which would never end until passing out. And the problem I was having with food was linked in with that as well. So I would basically I convinced myself that I um, I was overweight. I wasn't. And that I needed to have a lot more control around my eating. So I'd starve myself. Then I'd drink heavily. All the inhibitions would go. And then I'd binge eat after having binge drank. Wake up the next day. Hangover. Guilt. Okay, now I'm going to starve myself again. So I got into this awful cycle of binge drinking, binge eating, starving myself, binge drinking. <laughs> to the point I had to have hypnotherapy to, to help me through that. And my experience of hypnotherapy to anyone who's thinking about it it was fantastic it changed my life and i'm still grateful now 20 years later for that hypnotherapy that helped me through my binge eating problem but it shows me in retrospect that i've always had some sort of addictive personality one is never enough whether that be drinking or whether that be food fortunately the as i said the binge eating thing i i, I got over that with the hypnotherapy but the drinking thing is sort of, I'd never really got over until, until recently. So that sort of makes some sort of sense of why the hypnotherapy helped me through that. Yeah, you know, and I really appreciate your candidness in sharing about the binge eating too, because for many of us, it's not just one thing. It ends up being many things, cross addiction, whether you want to call it a cross addiction or not, just our brains kind of latching on to something else. And also what you mentioned, you know, I feel like I share that trait with you where it's this, I need more of whatever it is. And I, my journey is also linked to food and alcohol. I never really messed with other drugs and I'm grateful for it. I'm kind of, I think that the reason being is I knew First of all, my dad's recovered from cocaine as well. And I knew, I think if I try it, I'm going to want more of it because the pattern is trending in that direction. So I may as well not go there. But I've found that it's empowering to know that about myself, that I just kind of am that way. But it's also pretty defeating. Does it feel defeating to you that that's kind of like the trait in you? Yeah, and what I, what I identified as I kept on this drinking path was that I can only enjoy drink number one if I know that there's two, three, four, five, six coming mm. because it kind of gives me that comfort to know that it's not going to end. So I think what eventually helped me, and I'm still, not, I'm still not completely got over this, and it's still an issue for me, this whole, like, there has to be more for this to be fun was a more of a sense of trying to enjoy the moment and trying to appreciate the thing that's actually happening here and now. And that has been tied in with present moment awareness and, and breathing and, and taking a moment to really feel and, and see what's around you. But it would be a case of let's just chug this drink because there's more coming. Brilliant. And that was how the binging thing 
got worse and worse as years went on. How was this hypnotherapy experience? Like, can you talk to us a little bit about that for those listeners that have never heard of it or would just like to get like a little cliff note or a picture of what it looked like? Yes. So you go into the session and the first half an hour or so would be spent just talking, talking very much like a therapy session, talking about what what's been happening, what's been recent experiences with with food. And then the therapy actual being hypnotized would be the second half of the session. And I'd wake up from that just feeling almost like it all happened so quickly, but you know, half an hour gone by. And I wake up just feeling so calm and so at peace and a sort of a peacefulness that would last maybe, you know, half an hour until you get out of the room half an hour later. Another really important thing that the hypnotherapist did was that he got me to not only read a brilliant book, but also to chart everything that I was eating. So every day it would be divided into right morning, uh, so breakfast, then morning snack, then lunch, then afternoon snack, then dinner. And so you would write down what you'd eaten, what time it was, and how you felt about it. And I think this whole journaling thing and being able to analyze your actions is really important and has continued to be important for me during my um, during the last couple of years of, of, of working through alcoholism because having like a drinking diary and saying this is what happened this is how I felt about it this is what I drank not only do you get to start to see the patterns emerging but you also then find it easier to avoid because you're like oh hang on I remember this is you know play the tape forward this is what's going to happen. I know this is what's going to happen because I've journaled it so many times. You know, there's something about journaling that I still shy away from and I hate admitting to this on the podcast, but I think <laughs> it just, it's such an act of bravery because you can write all you want, but if you write exactly as you're sharing, if you write down the truth of why I did it, how it made me feel, you're basically just writing a mirror for yourself and that's really scary you know to see yourself that way and also really empowering because it can help serve as accountability later so i'm glad to hear that you've continued journaling and just the last question on this you know hypnotherapy chapter that you had in your life when you went in there did you share that you had a drinking and food problem like were you extremely truthful about what you thought was a problem or did you not talk about the drinking? And I'm only asking this because you said that it kind of cured the binge drinking, but the alcohol kind of stayed and progressed. Yeah. So it cured the, the binge eating. Yes, it was cured, but the alcohol was still there. We didn't talk about the drinking. I, I when I think back on it, I don't remember it being an issue with then. alcohol. It was almost like the alcohol was just, Oh, that's what we do. You know, we're young, we drink, we're in bands unfortunately it leads to this eating thing the alcohol wasn't seen as a problem back then or maybe i just didn't talk to him about it and if i had have done he would have gone at you this is a normal behavior but because i normalized it right. i didn't necessarily think it was worth mentioning yeah it still felt uh, normal to you it still felt like this is what everyone else is doing especially in your lifestyle so I, I i totally hear that i just had that curiosity because like you said maybe had he had that information um there could have been a different result but what 
was it then that later started really making you shift and maybe have you ask yourself the question, is drinking a problem? Was it just that it was progressing so much or were there any moments where, you know, you messed up or you did make that connection back to alcohol and start having a different train of thought around it? Well, there started being more and more incidents that would happen um, due to binge drinking, due to heavy drinking. Um, there was one time where I injured myself during a, a tour and I went on and I had a show the next day and we were, we were playing at this festival, we were headlining this festival. And I was incredibly lucky because we were out in Belgium or somewhere at the time and I'd hurt my wrist, but not to the point where I couldn't play. I could still play, but it could have gone a lot worse. And I think there are a few more of those moments that made me start to think, is this still funny? Is this still okay? It's actually threatening my job now. And it's, it's threatening the entire performance, the show. And I think there were a few times as I approached the end of the 2000s and going into the early, into, what do you call it, the teens, where I would say to my brother, who's my closest friend, right, I'm not going to drink now for a month. Please, can you be there for me to be accountable? Because I have to just not drink for a month. It's, it's too dangerous. Never thought about actually quitting, but just let's stop for a month because I need some space to try and figure out what the hell's going on and just to try and be safe for a while. And there are a few things that started to happen in the early like teen years of the 2000s where it started going from just being a getting drunk and passing out and waking up the next day with, with a hangover to becoming a waking up the next day and carrying on drinking. And that was the point where that's, if you, if you want to call it like the final chapter of my drinking was when it started to become this drinking the next day thing, which progressively got worse and worse over the last sort of 10 years. There was an incident 10 years ago when the first occasion of this drinking into the next day thing occurred where I'd come back from a tour. We drank all night on the tour bus um, from Europe. Then we got into England and um, me and this other guy just got off the bus the next day. So now it's like the next morning. We started the night before. Let's go to the pub on Saturday. And we ended up drinking through that Saturday. I left all of my possessions on the bus, my passport, my wallet, my laptop, my phone, because I was just so out of it. And we ended up in a theater Okay, uh, on some sort of afternoon performance of something. And I was so drunk that during the performance, I got up and started talking uh, during the performance to the people on the stage. And the <laughs> next thing I knew, I was getting thrown out of the venue. Okay. And the next thing I knew, I woke up on the Sunday morning on my friend's sofa, just like covered in French fries, uh, with this like, awful feeling of anxiety and, and, and just confusion. And I felt convinced that as soon as I went to the computer, I was going to see these headlines about guy stands up in theatre and stops performance. You know, the kind of paranoia and the anxiety that comes with a hangover. It, it didn't. But that for me was quite a defining moment of that was the first time where I'd taken it from what was essentially the Friday night through to the Saturday afternoon of just keeping going and going in the desperate search for something fun and adventurous that might happen next. Or maybe just the fear of if we stop, then reality comes back. 
we don't like reality. So let's just keep drinking. I think that's a big one for a lot of people, especially in the last couple of years that we've been living in the pandemic of like, I'd rather keep doing this than confront what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And as you pointed out, the whole pandemic thing of, well, what's the point? What's out there? There's nothing going on. Things are scary. Things are, things are, things are apocalyptic. <laughs> Let's just keep drinking because this, this magical world that alcohol gives us where we feel courageous and we feel like we no longer care about our problems. And as time went on throughout the 2010s, I remember 2017, I was on tour. I was on a long tour of America. And it was the first time I started to notice that I don't like being around other people after a certain point of drinking. I have a few beers with everybody. And then I just want to be on my own because I want to listen to what I want to listen to. I want to watch what music videos I want to watch. And so it would end up that I'd be sitting on the, on the bus, on the tour bus with people, drinking downstairs, having some beers. And then I just want everyone else to go away. So I go and hide in a different room on the, on the, on the bus and just be drinking by myself until possibly 10 or 11 in the morning. Pass out, wake up like two hours later, feeling absolutely terrible, and then have to do a show. And that whole drinking alone thing started to ring some alarm bells of, isn't drinking about having fun with other people? What's this being on your own thing that's starting to emerge? And it was something that they meant, okay, I wasn't playing drunk, but I was playing hungover. So my enjoyment of the music was being impaired through that awful feeling of guilt and anxiety and you know, being out of synchronization exactly with my, my music and who I was. And then there was another memorable time in 2018 where I, it was the only time I ever drank on stage. And it ended up being one of those things where we started on the Friday night and I got drank through the Friday, Saturday, drank all day, played Saturday night, Sunday, woke up in the hotel, horrifically hungover after two nights of drinking and realized that I'd left some of my really important musical equipment in the venue. The venue was now closed, it was a Sunday, and we were flying back to the UK in like three hours. And like literally thousands of pounds of equipment I had to somehow get back. I just broke down crying, and fortunately I had a really good support network around me of people who logically said, okay, here's what we're gonna do, here's how we're gonna do this, here's how we're gonna fix this. And fortunately we did fix it. But it was, again, it was one of those light bulb moments of what's happening here? This isn't normal anymore. This is now affecting my livelihood as well as, as everything and, and other people's jobs around me. So we're reaching the present now. So we're, we're up to 2019. And that was the first time when I thought, maybe I need to look at AA. And AA had always been something to me beforehand that didn't seem, am I really alcoholic enough? to go to AA. I'm not drinking in the AM, you know, I don't really have a problem. Is it disrespectful that I go to AA? I said like, am I an infiltrator on this very sacred place where people who really have a problem, am I coming in like some sort of sadistic voyeur just to look in? But people said to me, like, if you feel uncomfortable about alcohol, then, then go. Even if you just go once, even if it's just to check it out and listen. And I went along to this, this meeting and, you know, listened to people's stories. And, and one thing I found really fascinating was that people would say, oh, I've been coming here every week for 25 years and, and you haven't, and they hadn't drank for 25 years. And I'm like, well, why are you still coming? You must be healed by now. You must be cured by now, 25 years. And they're like, well, if I don't come, I'll start drinking again. 
And I didn't realize that, that that's, that's how it could be. And that was kind of scary. And, and then it got to the point where they said, okay, it's time for the new person to talk. And that was me. So then it came to the point where it was like, right, here's where anyone new can talk if they want to. And as a performer, I remember thinking, right, time for me to do a bit of talking, time to be entertaining, time to maybe try and be funny, which seemed absolutely absurd in, in retrospect. But I'd stepped up and be like, right, time for me to do my talking bit. I've got this. Easy, easy. And I started talking and absolutely did not see this coming. Within about 30 seconds, I broke down into tears and I was mm. sobbing uncontrollably. And I remember that I just said, I'm so scared that if I don't drink ever again, then there's nothing to look forward to in my life. Life will never be fun ever again. And that was a real shocking moment for me that alcohol meant that much to me that without it, there's no point living. And I came out of that quite shaken by it. And then through 2020 and through 2021, things started to get progressively worse. The lockdown didn't help. And I then started for the first time to live in an apartment on my own. Previously, I'd always had housemates or I'd been living with family members. And suddenly it meant because of the nature of my job as well, because what I tend to do for work is either I'll be out on tour and then we'll have like weeks and weeks or months will go by where you're just at home and you're doing other work like recording things for people or writing things for people. But you often are not on that much of a tight schedule. So there isn't necessarily something, right, Tuesday I've got nine to five in work, so let's go in, let's do it. It would be like, right, I've got a few things to do this week. I can probably just do them whenever which suddenly opens you up to this whole, hey, maybe I can just drink. Maybe I can just drink for a few days. And it never being the intention really of, right, Saturday night, I'm going to drink, I'm going to stay up all night, and I'm going to drink for as long as I want. Things would just sort of seem to happen. Maybe I'd uh, have a couple of beers with someone on a Zoom conversation on a Wednesday night. And then as soon as the drinking had started, I didn't want to stop. So that conversation would end. I'd feel guilty and ashamed about the fact that I was going to carry on drinking. Wouldn't tell them about it. But like, mm-hmm. cool, yeah, we're chatting, time to go to bed, brilliant. And then I just keep going. Mm-hmm. And it could be a random Wednesday night, but I would just keep drinking and drinking until four, five in the morning, until I pass out. Um, downstairs from the apartment, there's a store that's open till, till 11. And then there's another one down the road you can go till four in the morning. So... There's always, as long as you've got enough, you can just keep going and going with these two different stores. And I would end up then drinking all the way through the next day until the evening and then pass out finally probably one or two in the morning, 24 hours later, well, I guess 36 hours or however long it was later. Once the portal was open in your mind after that first sip, it's like you just got sucked in the portal basically. Yeah, absolutely. And then there was one occasion where I woke up a second day and went again. I only ever did that once, but it meant that it went from something like a Friday night to a Monday morning. And I'd often look back on these times over the last sort of, and there were some other like dark moments as well, where I'd like wander off into a field with a can of beers during the lockdown where you weren't really supposed to be outside unless you were exercising. And I would just be like completely recklessly just sitting in a park somewhere drinking cans of beer. Like, 
could have got arrested. It was really reckless and really irresponsible. But because you're just in that alcohol mindset, there's that sense of power of like, oh, it's fine. I can do what I want and everything's going to be cool. I would have conversations with people, like video calls with people when I was drunk that I'd look back on and they were really cringeworthy because I was being really embarrassing or being insulting to the people or being annoying. Text message conversations where I'd set up either like meeting up with people or even working with people. That other person thinking that it's just a Wednesday afternoon. I'm just having a conversation with this guy. Yeah, of course, we're setting something up. But me being absolutely drunk and then... It's like a people-pleasing thing of, I want these people to like me. If I set up this meeting or set up this work, it means this person will like me more. Which is where a lot of my drinking stuff actually came from, this whole people-pleasing. And so going through those weird limbo days of just walking around the apartment by myself, drinking, watching the same music videos over and over, because I'd look back on the history on the web browser and it would just be like the same stuff again and again caught up in this endless cycle of the same stuff and spilling beer and alcohol and whiskey everywhere and and like carnage in the apartment but no one I was living alone there was no one else to be accountable to no family no housemates no one to go what the hell are you doing just me and this amazing little world that I'd made for myself it got to the point where I wasn't even really using the bin anymore, the trash can anymore. I would just set up a big black plastic bag in the middle of the corridor, just be throwing beer cans into it as I walked past. Like, and it started to really unravel when I looked back on, these, on this very, very weird behaviour of thinking, is this how it happens? Is this how people become so dependent on alcohol and so controlled by it that everything else starts to fall by the wayside? relationships, health, jobs. Is this how people end up homeless? Because they can no longer fulfill their commitments to the point where all that matters is is drinking. And so it was like, there was an awareness of this. I would drink heavily for these 36 hours and then wake up and be like, oh my God, that's absolutely awful. I got anxiety for two days, three days. I'm never doing that again. Time for a break, time for a break. And a week later, it would happen again. And before we talk about how this all changed, I just have a really vivid moment I want to share with you because I, I, I feel like this really resonated, which was I'd always try and do this test of, hey, so there's this drinking thing. OK, well, what if tonight I'm going to have four cans and it's a test? I have to do this to be a responsible drinker. This is me testing myself. And if I can do this, brilliant. I can't not drink. Who can not drink? That's ridiculous. This is the way to fix it. I have to be able to drink four drinks and then go to bed. So I drank the four drinks. They went down very quickly. And I remember sitting there and thinking, right, now I stop. Now is the bit where we go to bed. And I just broke down. I was in tears because I couldn't stop. I was right there on the point of here's where you make the decision. And my feet were just already picking me up and walking out the door to the store. And I remember walking down the corridor thinking, I'm powerless to this now. There's no way I can not drink. And that being a really kind of dark moment that I think back on, that sense of utter powerlessness, even though I'd only had four drinks, it wasn't that much, I couldn't stop. And I hope that for some people that can resonate with them, that, that feeling of utter powerlessness to the alcohol. Thanks for sharing that because it does 
take over. And that once I, there's so much bravery in everything that you've shared and so much courage because just admitting that and having that awareness while you're in that moment of, I don't know, a lot of us catch ourselves after the fact or before. And I'm not saying that that didn't happen to you when the cycles that you're talking about, but I see and hear these like moments of awareness where you could think about this with clarity and really deliver reality straight back to your face, even though you were still doing it. Because I mean, the AA meeting that you mentioned where you had another breakdown was before the shares that you're having in your new apartment. So it's like such a great representation of the fact that we hit these milestones in our consciousness, sometimes even while we're drinking as well. And it's just really strange to me how the road of recovery isn't straight. And and I like these conversations because obviously abstaining in sobriety is the goal, especially if you are physically dependent to the substance. However, I think that there's this other track of like our consciousness and us having these windows of clarity. And I feel like you had been having those, you know, before this stint of sobriety. So thanks for sharing. And like, was that enough or did this get you started on a more serious attempt to quitting instead of just thinking about moderating with the four drink test? What happened later? There were three things that happened in quite close um, succession in August stroke September where all three of them could have ended in absolute disaster. One was to do with my physical health because I fell down some stairs. Um, and I was very lucky that my injuries were actually quite minor. One was an incident where due to my recklessness, I could have lost my job. And then the last one, and this was the one that was happened on the 25th of September, 25th, 26th of September, was that I was out drinking with someone who was incredibly important to me. And I won't go into the whole details of it, but the, the, the basic of it was that due to me being drunk and passed out, she couldn't get back into the apartment at five in the morning so that she then went off and got in a car because she was drunk with two very unsavory characters and she'd lost her phone. I couldn't get in contact with her for 36 hours. And during those 36 hours, I went through the whole experience of maybe this person has been kidnapped or raped or fallen in the docks or anything that could have happened because I wasn't able to let that person back into the house because I passed out because of drinking. And suddenly it was having gone through that reality of of, of feeling this this could be it. This could be me contacting this person's parents to tell them what had happened and having to try and explain it. And going through that very real, like, I'm, you know, those moments in your life where things suddenly become like, oh my God, this is real. Like if you're in a, in a situation in a car, you're almost in a car accident or one of those moments where things take a real dark step into this, into this zone of mortality. <laughs> It was one of those moments and I spent 36 hours with no idea what the hell had happened. Couldn't get in contact and was on the brink of calling the police. And then she came back and she was okay. And she told me what happened. And, but that was the moment of 
this is no longer just about me losing my wallet or falling down the stairs or this is about someone else's well-being now and that terror but every time I pick up a drink I don't know where it could end and it could end in something like what happened on the 25th 26th of September and that's what keeps me one of the things that keeps me from picking up a drink now is I don't know what could happen does that make sense that makes total sense and it is just pretty impressive to see how our heart kind of opens up and like activates that fear of responsibility over somebody else's well-being and somehow yet we can't sometimes seem to protect ourselves in that same yeah. way because you said it yourself you know it wasn't about me falling down the stairs or being reckless like all of these things could have happened to you many many times however we are sometimes so unable to understand our own fragility until something like what happened to you happens and you can kind of see it in somebody else but it's just pretty wild yeah, you, you summed it up perfectly. We don't seem to care about ourselves very much. Um, and maybe <laughs> yeah. we think we're invulnerable. I don't know. We think that we're just immortal. But I think maybe the desire of the pleasure that the drinking brings makes us just wallpaper over the the uh, the consequences of the next and the addiction, I suppose, as well, is, is that whatever's happening neurologically makes you go, oh, don't worry about that falling down the stairs or whatever it was we'll get by we'll, we always do yes yes our brains are crazy and and i just feel like we are constantly justifying our own behavior you know i feel like a lot of the advice or the you know the the phrases or things that i hear all these days out in the recovery world sometimes are like trust yourself trust yourself and i do feel like that's missing the mark because Sometimes, even today, I don't trust myself exactly because of what yeah. we're saying, that the brain will always find a way to make my stories like they make sense to me. You know, that's why <laughs> that's why it's important for me to have uh, not just accountability, but people that I can really just say what I'm thinking so that someone can be like, that's just doesn't really make sense. It makes sense to you, but it <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> off track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing and thank you for, you know, that's a vulnerable moment that you had at the end. That was, you know, your day one, or we can call it that your most recent one. And I'm grateful that she was safe. And I'm grateful that that event, although it was terrifying, projected you into where you are right now. So how were the days after that incident and that first chapter of sobriety <clears throat> right now? Well, the first day um, of of her being missing, drinking just wasn't even an option. I mean, I, maybe maybe some version of some someone in that situation would have gone, oh, God, this is awful. I need to drink more. But it was the most sobering thing ever of, oh, my God, this is real. I have to sort this out. I have to deal with this. And so that first day, rather than being like, oh, God, it's really hard. I can't drink. It was just like, well, why the hell? Would I drink in this situation? This is something that this is an emergency. So and then when and when she turned up again, then it was very clear that like we have to certainly I have to stop drinking because this has happened. So it was only really like the following week or so of that initial stage of I'm not drinking anymore. <laughs> 
and 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 it was previously having done the whole like stopping drinking thing the first week is always really really hard and then progressively things get easier because we're creatures of habit so suddenly the habit of not drinking becomes the habit so yeah it was um it was something that I was just trying to take it there at the time but very very much being in the sense of this is it this time and this is a real reason to stop so in a way it wasn't that hard to start with what I knew was going to be harder and what did become harder was actually once things start to feel okay again and then you're in the whole oh cool everything's all right let's have a beer and recognizing that that's just going back again that's complete regression of the cycle of once everything becomes okay again usually that just being getting over the hangover now it's time to drink again and that being no this time we're not doing that and what I had to do was find something else. And this is something that I've heard in a number of the podcasts that really helped me when I, when I started listening to Recovery Elevator. Find a different addiction for a while, regardless of, you know, of, of what that is. Eat ice cream. Um, watch Netflix for two days in a row. My thing was, I'm going to play computer games. And I'd always denied myself computer games before because it's a waste of time. I've got an addictive personality. But <clears throat> I thought, this is it. I'm going to play these computer games. So I would every evening look forward to playing these particular computer, this particular computer game for four, five hours because I knew it was keeping me out of the pub and out of the shop. And even if I woke up the next day thinking, oh, God, I went to bed a bit late last night or a bit tired now, I hadn't been drinking. So that's good. <laughs> and Recovery Elevator really helped me with understanding that it's okay to do these other sorts of activities mm -hmm. because they're stopping us from drinking. And that's all that matters in this first part of the journey. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. You know, harm reduction is a thing. I believe in it. I, I used to um, when my dad went to rehab and I, I saw how many people picked up smoking, I used to be very judgmental and I didn't understand. Like, first of all, why would they let them do that while they're in a facility to recover? And it's taken me time on my own journey to realize that, you know, we need something. And I do believe in harm reduction. And I do think that it plays a role in a lot of our journeys if we are looking to stay in this long term because white knuckling can only get you so far and i also yeah. feel like we are very most of us black or white thinkers so i see some people do it do it for me it doesn't work you know the whole i'm gonna quit drinking so i'm also going to quit video games and i'm also <laughs> going to quit sugar and i'm also going to get in the best shape of my life yeah oh, i get I, I get obviously i project my own inability to be that way onto people that share it. But I just feel like I've heard enough people share how that is not an approach that tends to work. So I'm really glad to hear that you gave yourself permission to do things that maybe you yourself hadn't categorized as this isn't the best use of my time. However, I am not drinking. And that's kind of the main focus right now. And that's the difference. The other times I stopped drinking before, I'd just be like, right, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. And then in a month's time, you can drink. But this time it was, let's do some work about this. And listening to these, these podcasts was where I learned about this whole thing of do something else that is kind of 
a bit naughty, that is a bit fun, that you would normally deny yourself in place of alcohol. And it's okay to do that. It's good to do that. Whereas I'd always been before, very much like you said, right, so we're not drinking, so now we're going to be at the gym every day at six in the morning and we're not going to do this or that, no caffeine, and da, da, da. And it just meant there's nothing fun left. So how are you supposed to get through life? You know, we are people who are, we should, we should be able to enjoy the things around us during our lives because that's what life is. It's about being able to appreciate and, 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 and actually feel and sense and taste what's around you. So that was a huge thing for me. And I'm so grateful that having the podcast there to listen to and, and hear people's stories and people talking about the toolbox they would use of different things. Like I think it was something like 20 things that you can do to stop you. You take the, you do little tasks and it kind of helps the craving pass and, and stuff like that. So that was, that was really good. And I knew that what I had to do first of all was get through and I would think of it like levels of a computer game. So level one is called the Citadel of Sobriety. I just have to be sober to get through this dark, scary castle. And that's all I have to do. And if that means ice cream or coffee or computer games or whatever it is, that's what I have to do. Part two, level two, is called the Crypt of Confrontation. And what that means is I start to recognize why have I got this problem with alcohol. And this was something else that I learned from the podcast that um, I think Paolo said in one is that addiction points to a deeper problem. You don't just drink because you like drinking. It's avoidance behavior. It's dealing with it. And being in level two, once I was properly sober and had been, finally gave me the chance for the first time in my adult life to go, what's the actual problem here? What is it? And how can I fix it? And whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I'm still not sure, but I'd like to try and frame it positively, is that over the last four years, I've also had chronic pain problems, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's to do with your body sends you, sends you pain signals when there's nothing structurally wrong with your body because you've trained your brain to think that the world is dangerous, okay? And I've been having these chronic pain problems for the last four years, and it was all linked up with the fact that I had these much deeper rooted problems with my personality and my, and my belief system, but then I would try and escape through alcohol from. But this chronic pain was saying to me, unless you face these problems, you are gonna be dealing with this pain for the rest of eternity. So suddenly I knew that to deal with chronic pain, I also had to stop drinking because the only way I could deal with the chronic pain was to be sober and in a state of mind where I was able to do the work and to be able to actually think about how to progress with my chronic pain, because it's very psychological and you have to be able to think about things positively. You have to be able to feel safe and all these things that alcohol and, and, and hangovers don't make you feel. You know, chronic illness is deeply emotional. It's like emotional stuck yeah. points. And, and if you're not processing the body's wise and the body just lets it out in other ways. So I like to think of them as like phantom emotional pains because it is something that we have to dig into. And I'm really glad you brought it up because it, it does, you know, play a role in, in sobriety. And, and what you shared too made me think of Gabor Mate, which we mention often. He doesn't say why the addiction, he says, why the pain, which is yeah. going back to that level that you are, sharing the second level, which is really asking yourself what the problem is and starting to really get under 
all of those layers of the onion, which it just gets more complex. And it, and it, it really, for me, is humbling and makes me realize how, you know, the journey's long and a lot of things get better, but also you have to continue to be brave because things kind of keep showing up and you have to, you know, protect your sobriety while you're maybe finding out things that you didn't want to confront way back when. So I feel like things happen in tandem, you know, when you are comfortable enough with level one, level two unlocks and you are stable and semi ready to feel some emotional discomfort that we didn't even feel when we were drinking. So it's just very complex. Is there a third level to this video game metaphor? Well, that's what I'm excited. (laughs) What's what it's going to be. It's going to be something that will happen. I think sometime this year, I'll step into level three when I have had these confrontations and I'm already starting in a very real way over the last couple of months of having conversations with people that I just not wanted to have. And those conversations being things where I'm able to actually speak my truth and stop just people pleasing and stop um, being afraid of criticism or backlash, which was one of my deep problems was that I just, the, the thought of anybody disliking me in any way or upsetting anybody in any way was so terrifying. So level three is gonna be what starts happening when I do have these conversations and when I do start taking actions that are actually ones that I've been afraid of before. Yeah, you know, it makes me think of boundaries and how a lot of people, you know, mention how hard it is to set boundaries, but I think setting them is the easy part. It's actually living in them. That's the hard part, which is similar to what you're saying, you know, having to have these conversations and then act accordingly. Like the act accordingly piece is the the hard part, you know, for many of us, especially when it's disrupting relationships and the way things were and dynamics, you know, it is a lot of destruction in order to rebuild new things. So I'm I'm excited with you, Ben. And I do have a question because COVID and you don't live in the States, so it may be totally different, but have you been back on stage since September 26th? And if so, how has that been? In fact, no, I, I haven't. There was the last shows that I did were um, in September before I stopped. Um, so they were still imbued with a lot of the kind of surrounding. Of course, you know, it was coming to the actual finale of the whole, the, the biggest chaos with the drinking it was, um, again, I was never drunk on stage, but the surrounding weeks, there were incidents and there was problems. So I'm actually very excited to see what happens when I go back again, when there's none of this, there's no fear of getting drunk afterwards. There's no fear of being hung over on stage. And there's just the sheer enjoyment of, of playing and the confidence that I'm going to be on tour for this amount of time and it's going to be great all the way through. There's no danger. There's no like, oh, but that might, what about this? It's just going to be music and fun and, 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 and passion. Yeah, all of those mental gymnastics of figuring out, you know, what am I going to do after and the party, all those thoughts, Yeah, all, all of that will be cleared out. Do the people in your environment with the band and with work, does everybody know that you are sober? Um, yeah, so I... I of the people that I've been working more closely with that I, I have explained this to them and I have been able to be quite candid about it of saying I am choosing not to drink and 
sometimes I find it difficult to, to frame it as in like I'm just doing it for a while or I'm an alcoholic or just to say at the moment as it stands I, I am a non-drinker and I've had some really good advice because what I've discovered is that there's actually a lot of people who in the business who have gone through what I've gone through in some shape or form and are now in fact the person I found out um, uh, recovery elevator was uh, a musician who'd been who'd been sober for five years and I think I saw a post that he made somewhere online and I knew the guy a little bit but I thought I'll get in contact five years that's amazing how did you do it and he pointed me towards <clears throat> you guys and the app as well which sort of counted the days and you know the money saved and everything like that that's just so cool to hear, you know, that it was someone you would never imagine that someone within the industry and you do start kind of seeing more people similar to you when you are on that track. It just it's just the nature of, of how it happens. And I I did want to say, you know, it's so cool that you say, like, I'm not drinking right now. It doesn't really matter. It's back to your level one. Whatever you have to say to just not drink that day, even if that moment you're like oh man what should I say should I say that I'm on a detox I usually tell people <laughs> we're so hard on ourselves because we feel like our answers aren't good enough or we're not being honest enough you we we go back to judging ourselves but it's like honestly whatever tell them whatever it doesn't really matter that you don't have your script ready or that you don't know exactly what to say it it doesn't matter it just matters that you that you say that you're not drinking that day yeah I think one thing I'm struggling with this a little bit, and I'm sure I'll figure it out, is that when I talk to people about drinking, am I then making them think, oh, that guy's an alcoholic. We won't get him in our band. And am, am I like a time bomb now that I'm an unemployable time bomb? Um, and that's always been the kind of anxiety around how do I frame this? How do I word this when I explain it to people? That is a very valid fear, you know, especially in the world that we live in, you know, exposing yourself that way. I, I get it. You know, many people on this show or won't come on the show or don't want to share with people in their work. I also think that, you know, a lot of it is our, is our responsibility in terms of recovery, but there's a lot of work to be done in society for us not to be seen that way and to actually be seen as, you know, an asset because we know that he's actually not going to be a train wreck musician. So it's just kind of like flipping that script. But I do think that to your point, society still has a lot of false narratives around addiction that may hinder us still. And I just hope that those change with time. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think we're fortunate that we are in an environment where it's becoming more acceptable and more recognized to <clears throat> be a sober musician. And there are lots of very kind of very famous and successful people who have made that commitment and um, and have thrived as a consequence and been a, a huge inspiration to people. Yeah, I agree. You know, athletes, actors, musicians, luckily there's people speaking up and I think that things are trending upward with addiction awareness and mental health awareness. So we will well, yeah, I mean, figure it out. And alcohol is a thing is that if alcohol were introduced today for the first time, it would never be allowed because it's so dangerous and toxic and addictive, but because it's been in our society for so long, it's just accepted. Exactly. It's so normalized and it's been so ingrained into our culture for years. You know, all cultures, I'm Mexican and there's all these rituals around 
pulque and other beverages oh, yeah. that, you know, that are from Mexico and originated with the Aztecs and all of this. So it's just, it's history and, and, and it's a lot, but you're right. If, if alcohol were a new product today, I'm sure it would totally flunk because <laughs> it is no bueno. And everybody's starting to realize that. I also feel optimistic about the sober curious movement and more and more sober beverages and sober clubs. I mean, it's, it's the best time to decide to not drink. And, and Ben, we are running out of time. So I'm going sure. to pivot into our rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabulous. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. What would you say to your younger self? I'd say be brave because the time is coming where you will have the strength to realize that sobriety is the right path for you. Don't feel scared that you don't feel ready for it yet. You said you like books. Is there any fun or interesting book that you're reading right now? I am reading, I'm rereading A Room with a View, which is by Ian Forster. And it's one of my favorite books because even though it's over 100 years old, it really outlines the, the uptightness of English people. <laughs> and me <laughs> being one of them, I really find so much humor in it. The fact that it's still so relevant today. I love it. What is your favorite ice cream flavor, Ben? Uh, mint chop chip pretty much anything and because i've gone so long with denying myself that pleasure finally i'm excited by that yes let's see ice cream now because we're not drinking yes ice cream <laughs> <laughs> what parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze i'd say firstly what we talked about earlier distractions treat foods if you've got an addictive personality find a good addiction for a while just to get through that first level just to get through the system of sobriety that's what you need to do and if you relapse don't punish yourself because the negative self-hate is what could be driving the addiction just be proud that you're even trying yes the negative self-hate is what can be driving the addiction before we depart ben give listeners your own you may have to say adios to booze if line you may have to say adios to booze if you're sat in a ditch by the side of the road at 9am on a Tuesday morning, having been drunk for the last 12 hours, swigging warm lager whilst listening to songs from your childhood and hoping that the next passing vehicle isn't a police car. Oh my goodness, Ben, I am so grateful that you're sober. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I can't wait to share this with our listeners. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening as well. And we'll be in touch. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Very well, Team Ari. That's a wrap. And before I say adios, I want to share with you something that I read recently. I'm getting through this book with my therapist called The Happiness Trap. And I can't say enough good things about it. I'm actually really enjoying it. But... It's all about debunking this myth that we are supposed to be happy all the time and that that's what we should aspire to be feeling 24-7. And, it, you know, it has a lot of parallels with sobriety. You know, I read this little piece that says, say you've decided to climb a mountain because of the spectacular view at the top. The mountain is, of course, our sobriety. Halfway up, it's a steep, narrow and rocky trail. You're cold, tired, and wet, and you know it will only get worse. But you're willing to endure this discomfort, not because you want it or enjoy it, but because it's on the way to where you want to go. 
I thought it's beautiful because many days and many moments on this journey aren't necessarily how we want to feel, but they are actions that we are taking in the right direction, you know, in the direction of the life that we all want to live, a life free of alcohol and a life where we can stay with ourselves and not numb out, a life where we can feel not only the joy, but also the tough feelings. So just remember that it's not always supposed to be amazing. The journey is full of cold, tired, and narrow and rocky trails. But try to always keep reminding yourself where you're going. It really does help. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, embrace the journey of becoming. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need?